Notice those are in the second person, and we sing that song as a prayer to the Lord. We sing it uh, to Him who is hearing us from heaven, the one of whom all those things that we say are true. Uh, To begin, I want to do something a little bit different and give us just a few moments uh, of silence. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds or so to pray and to prepare your hearts, and then I'll pray, and we'll begin opening God's Word and hearing Christ, who is the Son eternally, Appeared in heaven, returned, and is returning, but now speaks to us through his words. So pray for your own heart, pray for me, and prepare to hear him speak. So I'm going to give you about 30 seconds or so to pray. Our Lord, we do long to hear you speak to us from heaven. In the pages of the book that you have given to us, we have the words audible to our ears, but we hear your voice as they're attended with power by your Spirit. And thus we are like those sheep in John chapter 10 who hear your voice and follow you wherever you may lead. And so we ask you now as we prepare to listen to you speak, That we would hear your voice, that we would hear the warnings and be warned, that we would hear the encouragements and be encouraged, that we would be instructed in every way, that we might think, live, feel, and believe according to the truth and for your glory. We commit our time to you and we pray in your precious name, O Lord. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. We'll be looking at verses 29 through 36 this morning. We'll try to get all the way through. I can't promise that we will, but we will certainly attempt to do that. Verses 29 through 36 of Matthew 23. And we're coming now to the final woe. The final woe in this list of woes given by our Savior against the apostate leaders of the nation of Israel. And this is really one of the saddest chapters in all of the Bible. It is summarized for us, really, by the Apostle John in chapter 1 when he says that God who created the world came into the world, and yet the world did not believe him. He came to his own, he says in verse 11, and those who were his own did not receive him. And here we see that epitomized by these leaders of the nation of Israel. These were the shepherds. These were the guardians of the truth. These were guides to the blind. These were the eyes of the nation, as it were. These were the ones who knew the word of God and were supposedly leading people in the word of God and to their God. But in fact, as we are well aware, they were agents of their own destruction, and not only their own destruction, but also the destruction of God's people. Now, as was mentioned earlier, essentially these woes that Jesus gives in Matthew 23, they correspond to the blessedness that he mentions in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is making clear to the people, clear to this nation, what it means to be in the kingdom of God, what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God, the characteristics of those who have entered into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's salvation, the kingdom of God's righteousness, the kingdom of God's blessing, the kingdom of God's authority, the kingdom of God's glory. And he gave a list there that is very different than what characterized much of the nation, and particularly these leaders. These words would have been a shock to them, essentially. Something very different. As a matter of fact, the ministry of Jesus was so different that he had to assure them that he did not come to contradict the law and the prophets, but actually to fulfill it. But in his fulfillment of the law and the prophets, he displayed how far away they were from it and that they did not recognize him and did not see him for what he is and what he taught for what it was. 
So Jesus said, then to be in the kingdom, to be blessed, to be in a right relationship with God is to be first poor in spirit. It is to be devastated. It is to be a spiritual beggar. It is to realize you have nothing on your own. You contribute nothing but your sin to God. You need from God everything pertaining to salvation. We need a new heart. We need the gift of his grace. We need his righteousness, not our own. And that is what marks those who are in the kingdom of God. They are a poverty of spirit, people of poverty of spirit. They are those who mourn over their sin. Those who have a deep awareness of their constant need for grace and to walk in the light of God's grace. Ultimately, that is provided for us in Christ. They are those then who, meek over their own sin, are gentle. They're humble in how they deal with others. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart, completely dedicated to God, to walk in God's ways, to honor God with their life, to walk in righteousness. They are peacemakers. They are those who are willingly giving themselves to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's what it means then to be in the kingdom of God. It means to be devastated of yourself, to hate sin, not only outside of you, but more importantly, inside of you, and to trust in Christ alone, to trust in God's provision alone for righteousness. And then Christ is our hope and our joy and our glory, our salvation. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. But by contrast, then we come to these woes that are laid at the feet of these scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisee, hypocrite. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So basically, everything Jesus taught as marking those in the kingdom, they opposed by their hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of their lives and the hypocrisy of their doctrine and of their teaching. Rather than bringing people into the kingdom, they were shutting them off. And as Jesus would say in verse 15 of Matthew 23, making them twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Rather than leading the people to a whole life of worship, they entangled them in a system of minute rules that manipulated the truth and justified lying and a lack of character. They covered over true righteousness by focusing on the external and so fostering a religious system in which hypocrisy flourished and hidden sin found a safe haven in the heart and mind while living in the lie and the thin veneer of righteousness and religious commitment. That was the religious system they had created. And so Jesus is essentially here removing that mask. He's exposing them. He's showing them to be what they really are, revealing the true heart of spiritual death and darkness that lies behind these leaders. And it lies behind every false leader and every false religious person who does not truly know God. These are then the very models and the embodiment of righteousness to a nation and commitment to God who are, in fact, just the opposite in leading So many astray. And in fact, these leaders thought in their system that they designed that was handed down to them by their forefathers, they thought essentially by their righteousness they were participating in this kingdom that God would bring. They were, by their obedience to the laws, they defined it, ushering in this great and glorious kingdom of the Messiah. And so blind were they in their sin, they did not realize that, in fact, not only were they not ushering in the kingdom of God, they were, in fact, inviting and provoking the judgment of God against his people. And so this is the situation of Matthew chapter 23. And now in this final and climactic indictment, Jesus lays before them the ultimate vindication of God's judgment against these false leaders. It is the climax in many ways of everything that he's been saying up to this point. And namely, the evidence that he's going to lay before them is their actions, particularly their actions in persecuting the righteousness or the righteous, in opposing God's true righteousness, in opposing God himself. In other words, the actions of the wicked against God's righteous ones vindicates his judgment against them. 
Read with me, beginning in verse 26 of Matthew 23, and, or excuse me, verse 29, and we'll read down to verse 36. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Go back up to verse 29. Verse 29, and let's note first the simple point that false associations cannot hide guilt nor protect from God's judgment. False associations cannot hide guilt nor protect from God's judgment. And let's notice two simple points here. First is that they gave external honor to their righteous ancestors. In other words, they outwardly associated themselves with the righteous within the history of Israel. God's prophets, his righteous ones. He says, you build and you adorn the memory of them, their graves as it were. And each of these activities marks then a distinct effort, an intentional effort to identify themselves with those who had served God faithfully in the past. Those who were recognized to be true servants of God. In other words, righteous men, righteous people. They were authenticating them. They were lining up then on the right side of history and putting themselves in the line of those who were blessed by God in the sense of being faithful to him. And there's not a lot of information as far as how they exactly did this. The tomb of David was built up and adorned even by Herod himself in the construction of the new temple. It's mentioned in Acts 29. But the point is, is they were clearly going about in their activities and sparing no expense to align themselves again with the righteous in the history of their nation. They wanted to show solidarity with what they stood for. And again, it was designed to boost their esteem and serve as a badge of righteousness for them. To promote the righteousness that they claimed to have. They also gave verbal honor in verse 30. Not only did they build up tombs, not only did they adorn graves. He says, they say, if we would have been alive in the days of our fathers, we would not have participated in the blood of the prophets. And by adding this, Jesus is exposing essentially how adamant they are to align themselves with the righteous of the past. How adamant they were to disassociate themselves from those who were the wicked. Those who were opposed to the will of God. It wasn't enough to invest the time and the resources in adorning their graves. It came with a confidently asserted verbal affirmation of their rejection of the deeds of their predecessors. And this is significant. It's very significant. Because the history of Israel is riddled with the persecution of the righteous by the covenant people of God. Her history is strewn with the bodies of the prophets and the righteous ones and those who were faithful to God in the midst of a nation that had rejected her God and who opposed his will. You could say the pages of her history are stained with the blood of her prophets and her righteous ones. And this is repeated throughout Scripture. Let me read to you just a couple of verses here. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36... And Chronicles is really covering, it's the last one covering the history of this nation of Israel and at that point in time. He says this, and, and essentially what he's doing here when he's giving this list, he's laying out the justification of God for why he brought judgment on his people. He says 
in verse 15. Actually, you could go back up to 11. He's speaking here to Zedekiah, who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 12, verse 13, he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, against the instructions of God, who's told him to submit. Furthermore, in verse 14, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, all the abominations of the nations. They defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And yet, to this wicked generation, we have verse 15. But the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. What did they do? Verse 16, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. No remedy. Listen to the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2, 30. Striking statement. He says this in verse 30. He says, in vain I have struck your sons. They accepted no chastening. God would discipline them and they would harden their hearts. On top of that, he says this, Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. This is the people of God. The people of God. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a roaring lion. In Hebrews 11.37, those who were mentioned as going around in sheepskins, goatskins, hiding in caves, destitute, and so on, were essentially those among the Jews, the righteous ones, who were persecuted by their own people. And they understand this, this history. They understand the atrocities of their forefathers. They understand Jeremiah chapter 7. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And they did more evil than their fathers. They simply would not listen to God. And so they are aware of this. They understand that the leadership of the history of Israel is fraught with Rebellion and apostasy and sin and those who rejected the will and the word of God. And they understood that. And more importantly, they understood that the judgment that was coming or that came on the nation in the past, particularly the captivity, was due to the guilt of their fathers. And so they wanted to insist that they are lining up on God's side of history. They are not like those who did such wicked deeds And yet Jesus is going to confront them and say, you are completely wrong, completely wrong. And the implication then is this, that their insistence that they are in the line of the righteous and not the wicked gives them away. It is a tacit affirmation of their guilt. In fact, that they are of those who killed the prophets. They are of those who killed and murdered the righteous. But the point of Jesus saying that right here is simply this, to acknowledge the fact or to expose the fact that they understood what righteousness looks like and what wickedness looks like. And that those who line up on the side of wickedness are, in fact, worthy of the judgment of God. And the problem that Jesus is addressing is this, that there is no ignorance on their part in seeing righteousness in the past, but they cannot discern it in the present. And more importantly, they cannot discern it in their own hearts. And so the irony of this acknowledgement could not be stronger. It couldn't be stronger. For their inaccurate acknowledgement of the righteous and unrighteous in the past, they consider themselves to be in the stream of righteous. And yet, in doing that, they are affirming their own guilt and their own participation in the darkness of the ones they claim not to be. It's an extremely ironic claim. Extremely. This is what Jesus declares then in the next verse. You are of the ones then who killed the righteous and the prophets. And so you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Notice first, you witness against yourself. How do they witness against themselves? 
Well, as was just said, in that you recognize first that those who killed God's prophets were wicked and God's prophets who were killed were the righteous ones. He says then, because you are of the same spiritual family. You are of the sons of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, to call those in the past their fathers is to admit their connection to them, that they are descendants of them, that they are sons of them. However, the imagery, of course, is deeper. In the Hebrew mind, sons of didn't mean only a physical descendant. In the physical line, it meant that too, often. But it has the idea of sharing in the same characteristics, being of the same mold, being of the same nature. So you have God then who calls the sons of thunder to John and his brother. You have the Son of God and the Son of Man spoken of Christ, sharing in the nature of each. And so it is here. They are sons of those who murdered the fathers, who murdered the prophets. He says, you bear the same characteristics and nature of darkness as those who killed them. You're doing what they did. And so in calling them wicked, you're calling yourself wicked, and you are in line with the spirit of darkness. And so Jesus says then, in verse 32, fill up the measure of your guilt. And this is a strong statement. Fill up. It's actually a command. And the force of the statement goes something like this. Go ahead and finish what they started. Like father, like son, complete their wicked designs. In other words, there are still more righteous servants to be killed and to be persecuted, and you need to finish their work. Go ahead. Fill up the measure of your wickedness. It's actually very much like what Jesus said to Judas on the night of the betrayal when it says that Satan entered into him and Jesus looked at Judas in John 13, 27, and he said, what you do, do quickly. The wickedness isn't complete yet. Judas, you have a part to play. Go finish it. Also, they are a command. So in their deeds of darkness, they're filling up and completing the wickedness that still has more to go. There's still more wickedness that needs to take place against the righteous. This is a common theme. Some of you who were there with Genesis 15 will remember that God told Abram that they were that he was going to send him into the promised land, but it was going to be after the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, those who I'm going to judge still have more wickedness to commit, and then their judgment will come. Then they will be ripe. For the judgment that God has ordained. That's essentially what he's saying here to these leaders. You have more wickedness to complete, so go ahead and complete it. Now to bring this out, I think it's helpful then to see the other side. The other side of this. To get the force of what he's saying. Look with me just briefly at Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 24, I'm going to mention this as the contrast to get the fullness of what Jesus is saying here. Now, Paul is writing, of course, to the church at Colossae. And he's writing here at the end of chapter 24 of his mission as an apostle, what he has endured on behalf of the gospel, and specifically on behalf of these Colossians, in that he has endured the suffering that comes because of being the mouthpiece for God in the gospel. And he's done it for their sake and for the sake of the churches. And he says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, speaking of Christ, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. That is a Strong statement. What does he mean here to say what is lacking? Did Christ somehow lack something in his suffering? Paul is here not talking about the atoning sufferings of Christ by which he accomplished our salvation. Those are complete. He's already made that clear. He's already transferred us from the kingdom of darkness the Father has to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Christ has already accomplished the reconciliation earlier in chapter 1 that has brought men to God. That is a completed deal. He's not talking about justification. 
what he's talking about is that the sufferings that are meant against the righteous that Christ endured and his people endure. That's what he means here. He means that there is a suffering against the righteous that was epitomized in Christ in a unique way, but is meant for all of those who are in line with Christ. Listen to this verse. He says in verse 5, just of 2 Corinthians 1, don't turn there. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also is our comfort is abundant through Christ. The sufferings of Christ. In other words, God has established a certain degree of suffering that is to take place against his servants before he brings judgment. There is still more hatred, more opposition toward Christ that is yet to be fulfilled. In that sense, they are, it is lacking. There is a measure that God has ordained that is not yet completed. There is a measure of hatred against Christ, hatred against God, and hatred against those who serve him that is yet to be completed. And inasmuch as the church suffers those for the name of Christ, that suffering of Christ is being filled up in them, completing what is lacking. It is to say this, that every time we or the church suffers for righteousness, we are suffering the wounds that were meant for Christ. We're suffering the wounds that were meant for Christ. Here he's saying to these, you know what? You need to be the ones who fill it up. You go ahead and complete the wickedness that is your design. To the church, he says, bear it. Bear it and know you are bearing it. What is meant for Christ. What is meant for your Savior. So he's indicting these leaders and all who stand in their line, saying there's more wickedness to be endured by God's people, and you are the instrument of it, just as your fathers were. So go ahead and fill up the measure. The idea is the measure of the guilt and the wickedness of your fathers. And of course, they're going to do this first in their murder of Jesus, which is soon coming, which Jesus has already anticipated many times, saying that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be betrayed by the leadership, the chief priest and others, that he was going to be handed over, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be abused, and that he was going to rise on the third day, and indeed that is what takes place in his life. That is the beginning point and the climax, too, of this wickedness that they're even now pursuing against him. And it extends to his servants also. It's going to be a wickedness that they continue to enact against the righteous of God's people. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just listen, I'll read it, verse 15. Writing here to this church in Thessalonica who is also suffering from the hands of the Jews, the apostate Jews, and he says this, In verse 15, or verse 14, You, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men." Hindering us, he says in verse 16, from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Continues. It's a line, it's a stream of the wicked of those who are opposing God and persecuting the righteous. Continue it. It's going to continue and it will continue. And so then he brings us even more to the point, and he says in verse 33, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? How will you escape the sentence of hell? And so again, he takes the mask off and he reveals their nature. Snakes, you brood of vipers. This is, of course, the third time that Matthew has recorded this statement. Where was the first? John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist calling the nation to repentance? These leaders are coming out trying to mix in with the crowds, as it were. And John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? Jesus said it again in Matthew chapter 
12, when they were confronting him over his healing on the Sabbath, among other things, he says in verse 34, he calls them, he says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So what comes out of your mouth is venomous because your heart is venomous. It is unconverted. It is unconverted. And here he uses it again. You are snakes. You are vipers. And this is really a sad commentary. What it means then is that throughout the entirety of Jesus' ministry, there has been no improvement in these leaders. Out of all of their hearing, his teaching about the kingdom, about righteousness, his explaining scripture to them, his demonstrating the power of God and the compassion of God in his healing ministry and others. And through all of that, rather than being softened and brought near to the kingdom, they were in fact hardened more than ever and farther away than they had ever been. Now, snake here is the general term for snake. Viper speaks specifically of a poisonous snake. But the imagery of snakes or reptile portrays wickedness, deceit, what is deadly. This is found throughout the Old Testament. Let me read to you just one verse, Isaiah 59. He says this in Isaiah. He says in Isaiah 59, 5, he says... They hatch adder's eggs, speaking of the wicked. They hatch adder's eggs, and they weave the spider's web. And he who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth, speaking there of the wicked. And so it is the imagery that Jesus uses here. And, of course, the association here goes back all the way to the garden. Satan appeared as a serpent to Eve, to deceive, to lead the human race into destruction into the fall, plunging humanity into a state of sin and darkness. It is to say, really, this is another way for Jesus to say what he told them in John eight forty four, a verse we've mentioned several times in relation to his rebukes here. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Therefore, you want to do the deeds. You want to fulfill the desires of your father, the devil. You are of the same nature. He was a liar and a deceiver and a murderer from the beginning. And so are you. You're following in his footsteps. And so he says, how shall you escape then the judgment of hell? How shall you escape the judgment of hell? Literally, here it's Gehenna. In other words, hell is the eternal consequence for your rejection. And like snakes running from fire are eventually overtaken, so you will be overtaken By the judgment of God. What is he saying here? Let me remind us briefly. Gehenna refers to a deep gorge that's on the southeast side of Jerusalem. It's an actual place. In the Old Testament, it's called the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. It's the place that apostate Israel sacrificed their children to the gods of Molech and Baal. It's the place where the epitome of the nation of Israel's wickedness was made known as they sacrificed their children to these pagan gods. It took place in the valley of Hinnom. Listen to Jeremiah's words again in Jeremiah 7. He speaks of this. He says, For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command them, and it did not come into my mind. He says also in Jeremiah 7, verse 32. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. No one will frighten them away. So Gehenna then is the Greek term for this valley, which at the time of Christ had become a place where they dumped and burned the trash from the city, making it a continuing burning place of refuse. And in this way then it became an apt description of the sufferings of hell, which is how it's used 
on the lips of Jesus and how it's translated most often in the New Testament. It's a terrible picture. It's a terrible picture. Listen to one writer. He says, speaking of the imagery of Gehenna, were this all the Bible had to say about hell, it would be horrible enough. The sight of mutilated corpses, human bones, maggots, flies, animals and birds ripping strips of flesh off dead bodies, as well as the smell of rotting and burning flesh, convey a sense of horror and revulsion to which those who have viewed the aftermath of modern atrocities and warfare can fully attest, end quote. However, this is not the only description of hell that Jesus gives, we're well aware. He refers to it also as the place of outer darkness, a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm will never die, a place of, called a lake of fire, where Satan and his angels and others with him will be tormented day and night. But the worst description of hell, besides all of those, is none of the descriptions of the torment. It is this. It is that hell is going to be eternal. That is the word that strikes fear should into the heart of men over their rebellion against God. It is not only that it's miserable, it is that it is a misery that will never end. And by the very fact that it will never end, it will only make it more miserable. Listen to what he says in Matthew 25, 41. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. He says in verse 46, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hell is as eternal as heaven. And he says, this is what you've brought on yourself. This is what you have brought on yourself all while you maintain a system in which you adamantly profess your righteousness and diligently pay attention to the minutia of religion, but you've neglected the reality of your soul, which is what we looked at last week. You've rejected the reality of a transformed heart and love for God. And this then is, of course, not only of these leaders, though he's specifically relating that to them here, but it's the spiritual nature and end of all of those who reject Christ. They will occupy the same hell created for the devil and his angels. And the judgment against these leaders is going to be even worse Even worse, not worse than Satan, but worse than many. Why? Because they beheld more light. They saw the miracles of Christ. They had the life of Christ lived out before them. They heard his words. They saw his actions. They heard his reasoning that exposed the word of God to them. They saw his compassion. They saw his mercy. They saw the tenderness of his heart towards sinners. They heard his calls to repentance. They heard his pleas for them to receive his mercy. He opened it up to all, and despite all of that, they wanted none of it because they were so, so concerned to protect their kingdom, to protect their own proud system that was one ultimately of destruction. And so Jesus is asking here, what excuse will you offer that will keep away the hand of God's wrath Against you. What excuse will you offer? He's saying to them and to all of us, really, do you think your religion, your good works, your loud agreement with the righteousness of the past will help you? Do you really think that? Do you really think that anybody is going to stand before God and say, God, look at how many times I did these things for you? No. Look at how I agreed with all of the right things. No. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn over their sin, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are meek, are peacemakers, who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Those are the ones who demonstrate a true trust in Christ and a true knowledge of him. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. Now they may argue against this claim, as many would, That they're not of this sort. They would never do this. They would never persecute the righteous. Your argument against us, they may say, is false. It's wrong. 
You have misjudged us. You have declared something against us that is not true. We have not done that. We have not persecuted the righteousness, righteous. We have not killed God's prophets. How can you say that? And so Jesus is going to build on his argument. In response to that supposed defense of innocence, he's going to validate his indictment. And he's going to give a specific proof and application of his charge. And that's in verse 34, the second point. That Christ vindicates his judgment by giving his servants to be killed. Christ vindicates his judgment and his indictment against these leaders and those who stand in their line by saying, I myself am going to give you prophets and wise men and scribes and I'm giving them to you so that you can kill them and prove your guilt and justify my judgment. In verse 34, and we'll only introduce this here. We won't get all the way through. But let's look at it. He says the list here. I myself am going to send to you prophets and wise men and scribes. And what are you going to do to them? Some of them you will kill. Some you will crucify. Some you will scourge in your synagogues. And some you will persecute from city to city. That's what you're going to do to them. The list here, prophets and wise men and scribes, does refer to specific roles. But the the point is larger than that. It's more general than that. It's essentially every servant of Christ who is persecuted for the message of Christ. And there is a specific focus here then on those of the ministry of the word. But it's all of those who bear the message of Christ and are persecuted for it. Who are killed for it. That's who he's speaking of. He said back in chapter 21, he's already mentioned this, hasn't he? Remember the parable? He said the vine growers took took the slaves and they beat one and they killed another and they stoned a third. And he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. And of course they're going to do the same thing, he says then, to his son. When he sent him and said, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. This is here speaking of the leaders and their rejection of Christ. He said the same thing in chapter 22. They paid no attention when the king invited the guests. They went their way, one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. This is the pattern. This is the pattern of the nation throughout. God sends his word, he sends his righteousness, and they want nothing to do with it. And all in the name of righteousness itself. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, he will send his servants to you. To you. You. You who are the hypocrites and the false leaders. Even the wicked generation who murders the prophets. He just said, you're sons of those who murdered the prophets. And you would think he said, I'm going to keep them away. But he says, I'm going to send them to you. I'm giving to you, in a sense, my precious ones, the ones with my message. He's saying he's sending his servants here to murderers. To murderers. Notice the second point then. He's sending them to the unrighteous who will kill the righteous. Some of them you'll kill, crucify, scourge, and so on. Just as God sent his prophets to his people and they killed them, so I will do and you will kill them. And again, he's warned about this repeatedly. And the fact is here that the unrighteous world hates the righteous because they testify against them that their deeds are evil. He's going to make that point later in verse 35. Now all of these things, of course, kill, scourge, crucify, and really, you could say, persecuted from city to city in the general picture of his ministry, were committed against Christ. They would later be committed against his servants, of course. Peter was crucified Stephen was stoned. James was killed by, for his testimony of Christ. And many others. Paul was, a, was martyred at the end of his life. And his whole life was a portrait of his suffering for Christ. And it was by his suffering that he vindicated himself as a true apostle. You remember the argument 
The false apostles had come in who were denying his ministry, who were denying his message of Christ, substituting it with their own. And Paul says, you want me to prove to you that I am a true servant of Christ and that you are not? Look at my life. Look at my life. Look at the purity of my message. Look at the purity of my ministry. More importantly, look at what I've suffered for the sake of Christ. I'm not out taking advantage to use the gospel, to peddle the word of God for my own advantage. I am suffering for the word of God that they might be saved. He said, to my shame, I must say, we've been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak as in foolishness. I am just as bold. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abram? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is daily the pressure on me of concern for all the churches." That's a servant of Christ. They certainly weren't on that end of suffering for it. They were, in fact, instigating the suffering that would come to God's people. Let me make just the first of five points we're going to draw out of this, and then we'll close and pick it up next week. Five important truths that come out of this. The first is, rather on the surface, this is an explicit statement of Jesus' deity, and we don't want to pass that by. Who sends the prophets? God sent the prophets to his people. They're God's prophets. They're representing him. Here Jesus stands in that place with full authority. And though only inferred here, anticipating the resurrection, that though they would crucify him, he would still be the risen one who sends his people from the right hand of the Father, implied here. But he is with full authority as God, the one who is sending to them his people, and they are going to reject them, just as your fathers did in the Old Testament. Notice, secondly, this then. Jesus sends his people to dangerous places where they will be persecuted or killed. Jesus himself sends his people to dangerous places where they will be persecuted and killed. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says. In chapter 2, he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them. Who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them. Thus says the Lord God. A rebellious people. Who are not going to listen to you. They are stubborn against the will of God. And I'm sending you to them. Ezekiel. As my messenger and as my prophet. As for them. Whether they listen or not. For they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you son of man. Neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. He mentions it again, a rebellious like that of the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving to you. And so he did, which was the picture of a book declaring the words that he was to speak. Beloved, this is a very, very powerful thing that we need to lay hold of. This has convicted my own heart in thinking about what do we and are we willing to suffer for the kingdom. We have those who go into these places in Iran and Iraq and North Korea 
they've gotten what Jesus is saying. And you know what? Jesus sends them there. He sends them there. It's, it's Christ who does that. He knows there's going to be persecution. He knows wherever he may send you or what difficult situation he may put you in, where there's a cost to pay for the gospel, never should we think, well, Jesus wouldn't want me to suffer. No, he's saying be faithful to the truth and leave your suffering to me. I'm sending you there. I'm sending you there. He told the same thing to Jeremiah Throughout the Old Testament, he said it to Peter. He said, Peter, I'm sending you to shepherd my people. And guess what? At the end of your life, you're not going to sleep comfortably in the graves of your fathers. Rather, you are going to be taken to a place and in a manner you do not want to go. But you need to be faithful, Peter. Don't worry about John. Don't worry about anyone else. You be faithful to the end. In Acts 9.16, concerning Paul, he told, he said that, I'm going to show him the things that he must suffer for my name. In Philippians 29, he told the church, It's been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for the name of Christ. And God's servants, and as God's servants, we must be willing to go wherever he sends us to be faithful to the message. And we'll pick it up from there next week. But let's remember, even as we close, that Jesus sends his people nowhere that he has not gone himself. He has not gone himself. There is no suffering that can come upon the people of God that Christ has not himself endured first in their place. And ultimately so that he can be not only their savior, but also a merciful and a faithful high priest in times of trouble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word in Christ. Help us to not in any way lessen the seriousness of rejecting the gospel of Christ, your gospel. We can't fathom how deep our sin is on our own, but we see a glimpse of it when we see how these leaders who were privileged to see such mercy before them and such power and hear such truth and glory and yet hardened to it. And God, our hearts were the same way before we came to you, heard the gospel, maybe had people plead with us for the gospel, who reasoned with us, who answered questions, who told us your word, and we were hardened against it and wanted nothing to do with it until you, for us who know you, invaded our lives with grace caused us to see the depth of our sin and our rebellion against you, to see the corruption of our own hearts and how we've provoked you, and to cry out for mercy to your beloved Son, whom you have crucified and held up before all men as a satisfaction in our place, whom you raised from the dead to furnish proof to all men that we might trust in him with confidence and assurance. We thank you that you have done that work of grace. We pray for any who hear and that we witness to, not only in this this morning, but those in our lives who are hardened to your truth, that you would be so kind, so kind to them, and give them life, give them faith, give them salvation in your Son. Thank you for our time. Keep us faithful until we meet again next week. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. David.